Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're following a developing story, this one out of Colleton County. 4147 Moselle Road. I've been up to it now. It's bad. Double homicide involving a mother and son. Both deaths resulting from apparent gunshot wounds. In this town, nobody questioned the Murdochs for 100 years. You know, powerful people make powerful enemies. You commit a murder in the 14th Circuit, the odds of you going to death are high. From the studios of WCIV ABC News 4 in Charleston, this is the podcast Unsolved South Carolina. Case file number one, the Murdochs. Well, welcome to a virtual roundtable of the reporters and producers who have been on the ground covering the Murdoch saga. We've been working on this story. It is a collaboration. I'm Ann Emerson. I'm a reporter with WCIB and the host of Unsolved South Carolina the Murdoch Murders, Money and Mystery. And since we started this, though, this is a true collaboration. So what's so exciting about what we do at CIV? Because we have the assets and the people and the photographers to tell great stories. But today we are focused on Murdoch and, and, and it's a great opportunity for all of us to catch our breath, decide where we're at right now in this stories that are evolving in real time. And I want to get straight to our panel, introduce the folks that have joined us today. I'm going to start with Tara Jabor. Tara, tell me your background with CIV and your experience as a reporter and what brought you to the Murdoch story. I started WCIV just in April. So I've done a few stories about Stephen Smith and I spoke to his family. And then I did a couple of stories about the Satterfields and with their attorney, Eric Bland. We've got Natalie Spala with us as well. And she is our weekend anchor, but she's also a reporter. Natalie, tell me about your background and and how you sort of got brought into this (laughs) very quickly. You are pretty much thrust into this story. Tell me, Natalie, what happened? So I am a weekend anchor and reporter here at WCIV. Like you said, I was really thrust into this kind of in my second week, actually. I had gotten to the station the last week of May, and then I believe my first story I ever went out on here being in Charleston was me being sent to Carleton County to cover the double murders of Maggie and Paul. So thrust right into it, like you had said, Anne. That's unbelievable. Now, Drew Tripp is our managing producer on the podcast. Talk to me a little bit about how you are part of this whole world that we are talking about. I'm actually from Colleton County, uh, just outside Walterboro. Grew up there, uh, lived there up until about five years ago. Growing up there, knowing a lot of the players, a lot of the names involved in this, it's like the idea of six degrees of separation. For me, for a lot of the names that I've heard in recent years, recent weeks, recent months, it's one degree of separation. I can't say that I've ever personally met any of the Murdochs involved in this case, but I know that I've probably been, in, if not the same room, 
if I was never around them, never saw them, never met them, I know someone personally who did. It's been a very surreal case for me to cover and report on and be involved with. Again, the, the word is surreal. That word gets overused, but I think it's very applicable here to put that into the description of this. Just professionally speaking, with respect to the Mallory Beach incident down in Beaufort County, I originally saw it like so many people down here did through social media. A bunch of my friends start sharing posts about police help find Mallory, Mallory Beach being the young woman who died after a boat crash on Archer's Creek in Beaufort County. What bridge is it? Paul, what bridge is this? It's six people on board. They currently have one missing. Widespread social media chatter about it got my attention on it. And then soon after, the name Murdoch and the ties to the Murdoch family, specifically the Murdoch family of attorneys, very well known, a very, very prominent law firm. Once those names started getting brought into it, I, I can remember sending out emails to the newsroom, to the management staff in the newsroom, like, hey, we need to start paying attention to this. At the time, the decision was made, you know, kind of to let our Savannah affiliate take more of a take more of a lead on covering the case since they were much, much closer given to where everything was happening. But certainly from the beginning, we had our eyes on it. Well, you know, it's so fascinating because now we're what we're we're two years away from just that case. And we're dealing with uh, just in the latest developments, ironically, the late housekeeper's family. I mean, this was just news that we got yesterday. There's another case that has been linked with the Murdochs, of course, and that is the late housekeeper for the family, Gloria Satterfield, who was in a slip and fall accident at the family home. And now we're dealing with uh, insurance settlements that never made it to her children and it is the reason why Alec Murdoch is behind bars right now. This story has been moving in real time so fast. I know for a lot of folks that are jumping into it, for us, we were already three episodes in when major developments were happening on a daily basis. To cover this case takes a team. And I wanted to kind of get started a little bit with uh, where we're at right now, which is as of last night, I was on the set with Tessa talking about, it looks like Gloria Satterfield's lawyers have already been able to recoup more than the $4.3 million in the insurance death settlement that they were trying to get for the Satterfield family. We have some breaking news That's about right. the breaking news that happened at the top of the show that we talked about. I know, incredible. I right. mean, we just literally had an opportunity uh, right at the very top of the five o'clock mm -hmm. uh, for another breaking news part. This story is moving in real time, and I'll tell you what it As is. As we've watched all of these developments and all these sled investigations, let's go all the way, let's go back to when our team really had to start focusing on this case. And Natalie, I wanted to talk about the, the double murder. It's June 7th. Take me back to what it was like when you got the call that you needed to go to Collinson County and take us through a little bit of what it was like to be on the scene at the double murder where Paul and Maggie Murdoch were found, shot and killed on the hunting lodge. What, what happened that day? Yeah, so even before me actually going out to the scene in Carlton County. I was very much an outsider looking in on this whole situation. I knew the names just by being in the newsroom for my just two weeks before the double murders had taken place. I had known kind of the little bit of the background when it came to Mallory Beach, when it came to Paul, but 
I was still very much an outsider looking in on the whole situation. So when I was told, hi, Natalie, you're going to drive two hours south to rural Colleton County. This is what you need to know. This is what we know at this time. Just basically go to the scene, talk about what you see, just be a reporter. Essentially, you don't know a lot. You don't know everything. No one knows everything, but go to the scene, be a reporter. A double homicide involving a mother and son from the well-known Murdoff family. And our Natalie Spala joins us live from the scene with more on what we know tonight. Natalie. I said, okay, so driving two hours out of Charleston. And at this point, I, I had only known Charleston. That was the only area of South Carolina I had ever known. It was my home for just two weeks. So essentially, I didn't know if I was even driving in the right direction because I was <laughs> all over the place. But at the scene, I had arrived, my photographer in our live truck was actually already there, ready to go. Other news stations were there as well, from Savannah, from Charleston, from essentially all over the state, went to this location. Tahara, our photographer, she was there several hours prior to me being there, and she is the one that actually captured the footage of sled walking in and out of the vicinity because from where the street was as opposed to where the house was it was quite a distance I'd say at least a hundred yards by the time I had gotten there law enforcement was already off scene so in terms of what we were able to see and what we were able to really kind of make sense of essentially nothing Drew, talk to me about where this is, because it was a lot of confusion. It was like, what is Moselle? Is it in Colleton? Is it in Islandton? Where are we? And, and why is this area so hard to access? The home, the property where this uh, took place, owned by the Murdochs, is in a community called Moselle. It's right along the Salkahatchee River. Uh, it's right on the border of Colleton and Hampton counties. It's on the Colleton County side. It is westernmost part of Colleton County, very, again, rural is a very apt description of it. There's poor cell service, primarily agriculture swamp right up next to the river. The property itself backs right up to it. You drive down Moselle Road from Highway 63 and you turn off by the, what used to be the old car dealership, Bubba's used cars. Uh, <laughs> it changed name many times over the years, but you turn down Moselle Road and you go four or five miles. It's just a little settlement way out there. I'm reading a lot. Sort of the the interpretation of it is that the Murdochs had given their hunting lodge or home there the name Moselle. I, I think that's just, they're generally probably referring to the area where it was located because, I mean, they haven't always lived there. It hasn't been, it wasn't like, we know from property records and things like that, that this wasn't like a place they lived all their lives and had their family compound, I guess you could say. And that's, that's kind of a, a little bit of a mischaracterization of it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's, that's the general idea of it. This is just a, a community very, very far out there. It is very much its own place and its own thing. I mean, that's why it's so unusual uh, or shocking maybe is a good word for it to see a double murder on a property like that. Um, Absolutely. It's, it, they didn't even have gates up. You know, there wasn't some big security. We're not talking about a big town like where you would have a gated it, to go into this estate. It was like there were there's two brick columns. You know, when I was out there, I saw two brick columns and uh, they had just put up a, a gate, I guess, as these murders happened. You know, the other thing about this is, Natalie, you got 
sent right after being at the scene. Of course, they had to have the funeral, of course, a few days later. Those in attendance today are left asking how we got here today, forced to say goodbye to two family members far too soon. Tell me what it was like to be at a at this funeral. I know that they had some pretty extraordinary weather to contend with and just the shock of it all. What were you looking at when you were there? I think prior to the funeral, of course, we're dealing with these, these huge, huge names, um, knowing that the his, knowing what the history of the family was as well. I didn't really put into terms how big of a reach this family did have because at the funeral, hundreds and hundreds of people showed up. It came to a point where we were pulling up into the, the cemetery and we had to park probably a half a mile away just because it, there were so many people there. And media was kept off to the side. They did have us barricaded in just this one small, I guess, pile of grass. So we couldn't really get close. We were kept substantially far away from where everyone was. But I think really just the one thing that blew me away was the amount of people that showed up to honor these two people who had lost their lives. It, it really put things in perspective of this is not normal by any means, of course, but then for this to be the family that this happens to is, of course, 10 times more shocking. So that was definitely the one thing I had taken away from that day. Yes, the weather was by all means in insane. It was, I believe, just poured for, for hours at that time. In terms of what else I remember, we, yeah, no one would speak with us. I know that they were very adamant about keeping us kind of far away. I know we were handed a pamphlet and just reading over the pamphlet and talked about how Maggie was, um, I believe the words were she had had a heart of gold, uh, her son, Paul, an abundance of friends. I mean, it, looking at that crowd, those two sentiments, I, it, it, those were right in line with, with who these two people were just by the amount of people who showed up. As soon as we get through this funeral. I think it was within two weeks they announced that there's another SLED investigation opening up based on information they gathered during their investigation of the Paul and Maggie Murdoch murders. And uh, this brings us to you, Tara, because what did you do when you heard that the state law enforcement was going to be opening up a new investigation? And what had you been working on with that? You know, I remember seeing something on Twitter about this boy named Stephen Smith who died in Hampton County. And there was, you know, just a lot of talk on Twitter. So I had messaged someone and asked for the number of Stephen's mother because she was trying to bring attention to this case. The woman asked Sandra if she could give her my number. She said yes. And so I had this phone number, but I honestly didn't do anything with it for like over two weeks. And then I was working at the station one night and we get this alert from SLET that they are looking into the death of Stephen Smith. That was six years ago. And I remember I saw the name Stephen Smith. I was like, wait, I have the cell phone number of the mom. And Dean, who used to be our evening anchor, was like, what? Like, you need to call her right now. And it was literally like, 1030 at night. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll call her. Like, you know, I just moved here. I don't know anything about the case. I know Natalie had covered the double murder, but I really didn't know anything. So I called and she answered, which blew me away. Cause I was like, wow, she answered her phone. 
And um, we did a really quick phone interview with her and she was, had so much relief in her voice and she was emotional because she told me she had been waiting six years just to hear anything about her son. Because to her knowledge, it kind of felt hopeless. She felt like Stephen was forgotten about. And then this big news comes in that Sled's looking into the death of her son. I was ecstatic, very ecstatic. Been waiting on this for six years. They told me that they were reopening his case with a different Sled agency. So they're seeing it from brand new eyes. You know, we were talking and I was like, well, I'd love to speak to you and Stephen's twin, Stephanie. And she was like, yeah, I'm meeting Dateline tomorrow. Why don't you join? And I was like, Dateline? <laughs> I wasn't, you know, like Natalie said, I was a reporter in a really small market. It's not like I had heard of, you know, Dateline coming to my market and covering this story that had literally just broke. And so I was really nervous, honestly, because she was like, okay, I'm meeting Dateline at 11 in Beaufort. I'll meet you at 10 in Beaufort. And I was like, okay. And it's literally 11 o'clock at night or probably past 11 now. And yeah, the next morning we went to Beaufort and we met her at 10 a.m. I remember calling you that morning as you're driving down to Beaufort. (laughs) Because my background is with, with ABC magazine shows with the network. And I remember talking to you about it because it is a, it is a funny, you know, uh, you're working with local news versus network. And there's like a whole different set of priorities because they're also working on a news magazine show, which is longer format. You're trying to get the story of the day, what's going on. But that interview ends up being the basically um, one of very few interviews that were able to capture. Talk to me about, you said that they felt very relieved, but I remember there was one point where Stephanie got upset and it, mm-hmm. it felt like it was the first time in a while that they, that they really had some hope. What were they thinking in their heads or, or what, what were you thinking as you were talking to them about this? Yeah. Well, I remember when they pulled up in Beaufort, they were, You know, just these really, they're very nice, soft-spoken, you know. Sandra is a a very nice woman. She's very sweet, soft-spoken Southern woman. And, you know, they just had relief. Like, I remember, so Stephanie is Stephen's twin, and they were very close. They had a complicated relationship. That's what she told me. And I remember I asked her a question. I was like, what do you miss most about Stephen? And I guess in my head, I wasn't thinking that that would be a difficult question to answer. Um, And she just, you know, broke down and cried because she told me that, you know, that she hadn't thought about, thought about him in that way in a long time and that she hadn't admitted to herself um, just how much she missed her brother. It feels like yesterday. It's just every day, you know, I have to relive it. I think it brought relief to the family because they felt like no one really cared about Stephen. At least that's what they told me. They said it was investigated for a little bit. It's kind of, you know, quick. And then, I mean, it's six years. You lose a son. You don't hear anything about the investigation for five years. I think anyone would feel emotional. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're hearing that, you know, a huge law enforcement division is looking into the death of your son again. So they were all very emotional and kind of, it was very raw. I met with them at 10 a.m. They had just found out this news, what, 12 hours earlier, or maybe it was, yeah, longer before, but it was very, um, it was still very raw. And I remember 
Sandra told me that Fled had come to her house and told her in person that they were looking into this investigation again. So, Drew, tell me what, what you learned during that period, too. It had been somewhat on my radar, just from reporting that had originally gone on around right after the time of the Paul Murdoch, Mallory Beach boat crash incident down in Beaufort County. There was a reporter up for the Augusta Chronicle who had done some stuff with Sandy Smith trying to bring attention to it back in 2015. And I remember seeing that article recirculated around the time of the boat crash. And of course, Mandy Matney, Fitz News. They had done a lot of reporting on it just in the weeks prior to SLED reopening the case. So I'd read those accounts, read those stories, and was vaguely aware of it and knew that that was, knew that was a big deal and had an idea of who this was and what this was about when SLED announced that they were reopening the case. We just did a very, very in-depth look at this, this entire case, the Stephen Smith case, in our most recent podcast episode, uh, two parts, episodes four and five, uh, both looking into through the eyes of law enforcement and interviews that highway patrol investigators conducted and interviews we've done with Tara, the interview you did with Sandy and Stephanie and Stephen's family, other interviews that our affiliates have done, plus the documents and recordings that we got through a public records request from SLED, South Carolina, Highway Patrol, other other investigative agencies that have, have worked on this case over the years. An hour a total of content that we've published ourselves, just based on the hours and hours and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents that we've seen in, in relation to the Stephen Smith case. So it's a very, it's very bizarre. And I, I think the most telling thing in all of it, and I think we really highlight this, is the law enforcement involved in this they smelled a skunk immediately. And I think that is so much of what has been at issue with this case is law enforcement on the ground, reviewing the evidence, talking to people, they don't like what they're seeing. And yes, it's their job to be skeptical and it's their job to be questioning of everything they see and let the facts lead where they may. But if we're to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're good at their jobs and they know what they're doing, then it's very bizarre that they were immediately put on alert and clued into something that wasn't right. Does not appear to be, in my opinion, uh, struck by a vehicle. They were uh, raising the red flags and they were saying, this isn't right, something's wrong here. And then next thing you know, a medical examiner just says, "Eh, well, we're just gonna leave it down as a hit and run and the case is cold. Sarah, you and I worked on unpacking those case audio files. I mean, there were over, there are at least 18 case audio files that we received from the FOIA request. Uh, and we were looking through them and there was like, I remember you and I sitting at the, the table and we had been working on it for a few hours and we started hearing the, what, what exactly what Drew was describing, Trooper Todd Proctor, uh, there were a whole team of highway patrol and they're, they're starting to talk about names. And this is what episode number five of the podcast tackled is that the Murdoch name kept on getting brought into it. When you heard that, Tara, what was your reaction in the, in the case audio files? I, I know that you had had conversations with the Smith family when you interviewed them, but it was, what was your reaction when you heard it on the case audio files? 
Yeah, honestly, it, it was it was a little scary because, you know, and we kind of had a moment where we kept hearing the same story over and over and over again. And we've heard the same story from multiple people. And so it, it was just like a weird, surreal moment hearing multiple angles of the same story and that Highway Patrol had all this information and that we also had it. And so it, it was just, it, I don't know if you felt it too, Anne. it was like an eerie feeling because we kind of went through the situation in our head and you demonstrated it. And we, we got to this That's moment right. where we both were kind of just like, wait, this sounds like the story. And, you know, the thing is, is like right after that, as we were putting that episode together, this point stuck out to me because I reached out to Andy Savage, who is the new defense attorney, very well known, very prominent uh, Charleston defense attorney that's working for Sandra Smith and her family. He has his own private investigator, he says, working on this case. He tells us that we should be careful in the media that all of the speculation around the Murdoch family could be unfounded, I think is, is the way he put it. And that was an extraordinary moment because it made us, of course, rethink about the case audio files that we heard because that wasn't the only person who was interviewed, was it? We also heard from a former boyfriend. Right. Yeah. There was, there was a few stories like floating around, but there was just one that was prominent. So yeah, absolutely. So, and it was, you can't deny the fact that there, that's why this investigation got reopened with Paul and Maggie Murdoch murders. There's obviously information that SLED is investigating. And I talked to SLED also, and I talked about this in the podcast last week, telling me that they're making progress. So, you know, by the time this comes to air in six days from now, we might know a lot more about it. So Drew, talk to me about the Murdochs being in the spotlight before and how when this 19-year-old Mallory Beach died, what did we know about that case that, that concerned us the most? I think the immediately alarming thing is when I first heard the Murdoch name mentioned as being involved, you start hearing those names, and at least for me, growing up around here, being familiar with that law firm, being familiar with some of the attorneys who work there, uh, knowing their names and knowing their ties, that's immediately a big deal. So you, you want to pay attention to it. And what I believe more than anything through fuel onto that fire in the early going of that is there were no charges initially announced, no charges whatsoever. And it would be weeks before there eventually were charges before Paul Murdoch was eventually charged with, with any crimes related to that, that case. And now we know through sled reopening investigations and motions for discovery and lawsuits uh, from others involved. Connor Cook was one of the passengers on the boat in that, in that crash back in 2019. He, attorneys on his behalf have filed a lawsuit uh, against Alec Murdoch and a gas station that was involved, Parker's Kitchen, and others who were kind of tangentially a part of that whole night of what we now know to have been underage drinking, partying, bar hopping on a boat all over the Buford area. What has come out in that is the fact that apparently Alec Murdoch and his father, the late Randolph Murdoch III, they were at the hospital almost as soon as the kids on the boat were at the hospital. And the way it's characterized in Connor Cook's lawsuit and earlier 
legal motion his attorneys made over the summer trying to request discovery from several law enforcement agencies is whether or not Alec and Randolph had undue influence on that case and were tampering basically with the the people involved and the law enforcement agencies involved and trying to intentionally deflect or divert or distract attention away from Paul as having been uh, based on what we've seen through the records and depositions and court papers and police reports, everything that we've seen based on that case, the consensus was that Paul was driving the boat and Paul was very intoxicated when he was driving the boat. You know, Mallory Beach's estate, the parents have this lawyer, Mark Tinsley. Some others hope particularly that that Mallory's death not not be lost on those people that are doing those things. Talk to me about what Tinsley's done recently that has been able to possibly help several different families that are dealing with the Murdochs right now. So Tinsley requested an injunction against the Murdoch family with support of other attorneys and other pending cases involving the Murdochs. He essentially petitioned the court for an injunction to freeze the Murdoch's assets, to put oversight and restrictions on their ability to spend money, divest themselves of assets like property. There was also a request in there to put in charge of the Murdoch's assets to uh, receivers, to attorneys basically to oversee their finances and to be able to look back into their finances, go down the paper trail, track down where money was spent um, and things like that. And a judge has granted that request. And this was all done in the amid concerns that the Murdochs were trying to basically get rid of stuff, get rid of money. I think the allegations laid out in the petition for the receivership to be installed and the, the freeze on the assets they, in the last several months, first, Alec Murdoch signed over power of attorney to his surviving son, Buster. Um, and since that had happened, a mortgage got paid off. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars here uh, that just got wiped away really quickly. The Murdochs sold their stake, sold off their stake in a very prestigious is not the right word, maybe exclusive a hunting club down in Jasper County, or maybe it's part, partly in Hampton County, uh, but I was doing some research into it. This this hunting club that they're part of, it, it's just just for some context, the average average Joe around here, you look into a hunting club membership for uh, various places around the low country, you might be looking at, you know, $1,000, $1,500, $2,000, maybe three, four, five, way up on the top end for most people per year to get involved with a hunting club like that. Well, this this club, I, I looked through some online records and some listings. We're talking north of $200,000 to buy into this hunting club. Very, very expensive. Well, they've sold their membership in that. So just the idea that they are getting, they're selling off a lot of stuff and they're paying off these debts. Uh, it, the idea that as attorneys we've spoken to have put it, that they're essentially trying to deprive any alleged victims in this case, the the Beach family, the Gloria Satterfield family, they're by getting rid of all of this money and these assets, they're trying to, in a backdoor way, limit the amount of money that any of these people would get in in terms of a settlement should any of the pending court cases against the Murdochs go in front of a jury and the the 
powers that these receivers for the Murdoch finances have, they now can take a long look back into past financial transactions as well. And what we know from recent developments is that's that's looking like it's becoming more and more of a, a big piece of this entire puzzle is the past financial transactions. And it's uh, far reaching, huh? There's a, there's a lot of allegations that are floating around there. I mean, we've had the latest bombshells of a $10 million insurance to collect $10 million for the son and a alleged fake botched assisted suicide that Alec Murdoch was involved with. You've got uh, this insurance death settlement that never made it to the Gloria Satterfield, the late housekeeper's sons. You've got all of these different schemes and plots and alleged frauds that have been going on. How long is it going to take to untangle all this? I think they have uh, started to peel back, peel the banana a little bit or peel back the layers of the onion, if you will. I think they're, cl- I think they're close. Um, I, and that is just pure speculation. I think they're close to getting at the root of the matter and finding out what is the thread coming close. And it may be, it may still be years before it's all unraveled, but the fact that we have, now, Alex Murdoch sitting in jail, uh, denied bond, several, I think five total pending criminal charges against him now for multiple cases. It's just a matter of time until we get a clearer picture of where this all is going and how much how much this is a quintessential case of follow the money. Because if you think about it, that that's what's becoming more and more glaring in all this is is the money. So we, we look at just from the context of the, what recently happened with the receivership and the frozen assets, that aspect of following the money is, you know, just to preserve what they've got in case there is a financial judgment against the Murdoch family in the near future. But when you take that into context of uh, they're spending all this money and have all this money at their disposal, then you take into account, well, Alex Murdoch is now facing criminal charges and a civil lawsuit from the Satterfield family saying he just stole $4.3 million from them. Okay. And then you look back a little, uh, you look back a little before that in the Eddie Smith, um, the Eddie Smith controversy where Alex apparently tried to pay his old friend Eddie to kill him in a life insurance fraud scheme so that his son Buster could get $10 million, $10 million. In the Satterfield case, $4.3 million in life insurance settlements. Right around the same time as the Eddie Smith thing, we have allegations that from uh, from Alex Murdoch's own law firm, his own family, that he stole money from the law firm to the tune of millions of dollars. You know, you look back again, touching back slightly on the Satterfield stuff, where did that money go? We know some of it was hundreds of thousands of dollars in credit card debt and personal loans that were owed to his own family that Alex paid back. Uh, reportedly, he paid off a debt that he owed to his father, Randolph III. Uh, it's just starting to really, this is massive amounts of money that are being thrown around. And it's not just money. Uh, if you're following along with the case and, and the Reddit threads and uh, some of the other reporting uh, out there, uh, Fitz News has done some on this, but property transfers and somewhat sketchy looking property transfers dating back years and years for properties that were on the open market would go for millions of dollars, sort of just exchanging hands for pennies on the dollar in some cases. 
uh, fractions of a penny on the dollar. It is, it's, it's leading somewhere and the and following the money is very important right now. And I think one of the more incredible scoops leads allegations to come out of this in recent weeks that we're trying to follow right now is a report by the state newspaper. Alex Murdoch may have been tied to the Cowboys gang, which is a street gang based out of Colleton County with a long history of violence and drug dealing and things like that. And that, again, that's a report by John Monk at the state newspaper trying to point to where this is all going. And you take into account also that Alex's attorneys and himself are saying that he's had a long long battle with opioid addiction and drugs. And you look into the toxicology report from when he was hospitalized from that apparent shooting incident and a lot of drugs in his system. This report that now he's potentially tied to a gang of drug dealers and there's all sorts of millions of dollars missing all over the place and being spent. It starts to paint a little bit of a clearer picture, but at the same time, it just opens up the floodgate of, so many more questions. So many more questions. And I'm so grateful for everybody to be able to talk to us today about this. We're going to be tackling the Satterfield storyline next week. So we'll be able to dig a lot deeper into what the lawyers are trying to do there as far as uh, secure money and also show some level of connection and all of these money trails that's going on as well. This is truly taken on a life of its own in some ways, this Murdoch story. And we're going to be keep, we're going to keep on following it to see what happens. We have a lot to unpack and we're going to keep on doing it for you. And next week, coming up on Unsolved South Carolina, we're going to be unpacking the Satterfield story. I've always made it my... Uh, mission that if lawyers mistreat clients or if they steal from them, I will chase them to the gates of hell to make it right. If you enjoyed listening today, please consider rating and reviewing. It goes a long way to help others discover this podcast.